This is an ABC podcast. The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends. Generally speaking, when you see organizations, companies restructuring, that usually is a result of people leaping to conclusions. And I've seen companies waste an enormous amount of time and money leaping to conclusions. Okay, so hands up who hasn't seen that with restructures. Hmm, no hands. I'm Lisa Leong and my guest today on This Working Life is Dan Markovitz, author of The Conclusion Trap. The conclusion trap is the tendency among all people to jump to a conclusion without really understanding the problem they're trying to solve. And as a result, they end up with facile thinking and really suboptimal countermeasures or solutions to problems they're working with. Dan argues that to get to the essence of the problem at hand, you need to look past the seemingly obvious. There was a hospital a friend of mine worked at. In the United States, we have these uh, patient evaluation scores, how, how happy patients are. And there was a there was a score at this one hospital. Patients were complaining about it being really noisy at night. So the CEO of the hospital said, ah, well, you know, we've got it's a hospital, so they have linoleum hallways, you know, it's hard surfaces. And he says, well, the people are being wheeled around, the things clatter and, and, and noise bounces around and whatnot. So we have to install carpeting. Okay, he's left to a conclusion here that clearly carpeting will make things quieter. And in fact, it would, um, except that it turns out that it wasn't the noise of the things rolling around on the carpet. In fact, the big problem was that patients kept their doors open or nurses kept the doors open and patients would have their TVs on really loudly. So the, the hospital spent tens of thousands of dollars carpeting all the hallways. Not only didn't it make a difference, but it created a problem because the, the hospital had asked the nurses to bring their carts with their computers, they call them cows, computers on wheels, bring the carts with the computers around when they would go into the patient rooms. But now, of course, the carts didn't roll along the floor very well because mm. of the carpeting. So now, on the one hand, they're told to bring carts around, uh, but they can't because it's not very convenient. They spent a lot of money that didn't make any difference. And what they found when they actually talked to the people who, who really understood the situation, which is to say the nurses, the nurses said, oh, well, you know, the doors are all open. If we just close the doors, we can probably take care of this, which they did. And sure enough, after they invested thousands of dollars into carpeting, uh, they started closing the doors and the patient scores, the happiness scores went up. So that's, to me, a st- <laughs> well, I've got, a le- I've got legion examples of this, but this is a perfect example of people leaping to a, a solution or jumping to a conclusion because they don't really understand the problem they're dealing with. And unfortunately, that story feels strangely familiar. So what do you think is the number one mistake we do make when making decisions at work? I would say that one of the biggest problems is that we don't take enough time to actually see what's happening. And what do you mean by see? If you can actually go and see the work that's being done or see the environment, you get a much deeper understanding for what the situation is. So, for example, if we take the hospital situation that I just described, had the CEO either talk to the nurses who, of course, see the hospital every day, or alternatively, if the CEO himself had taken the time to go into a patient's room 
and talk to a patient about when it's loud, when they're unhappy, and what kind of sounds they're hearing, he probably would have gotten a pretty good idea that it wasn't, in fact, the, the carts rolling up and down the hall or the gurneys with other patients. It was ambient noise from televisions. So we are under so much pressure well, there are a variety of reasons, but certainly one of, the, one of the issues we deal with is that we're under so much time pressure, or we feel as though we're under so much time pressure, that we're unwilling or reluctant anyway to take the time to say, you know what, I don't understand this problem well enough. What I need to do is spend some time and watch. Go to, as my friend calls it, going to the crime scene, right? Detectives make, never make a judgment as to who the guilty person is on a, on, a, on a police procedural. The first thing they do is go to the crime scene and they look at the street, they look at the windows, they look at where the bullet casings are and things like this. Because if you, until you really see it and understand it, you don't really understand the situation or you don't understand the problem. And so what's your reflections on the reliance on data? So this is, this is actually something where my, my, my wife always rolls her eyes and, and slaps her forehead when I talk about the, di the difference between facts and data. And to me, data is two-dimensional. It is a simplified representation of reality. Data is a, uh, it's a report on a spreadsheet. So it's a bunch of numbers. It shows that sales are up or expenses are up or sales are down or employee attrition is high or something like that. But the facts is the holistic, three-dimensional, full-color picture of what's happening. So if we go back to the hospital, sorry to drag you back into the health, the American healthcare system, um, known worldwide for its excellence. If we go back to the healthcare example that I just gave, the data are these, they're called the HCAP scores. So there's the patient satisfaction scores. The data shows that patients are unhappy and they're saying that it's noisy. The facts would tell me if I were if I spent the time uh, in a patient room, the facts would be the doors are open. The facts would be that people have their TVs on quite late and often they fall asleep in the room with the television on. The facts would show me that, um, that in fact, we don't have that many carts running up and down these patient, these patient corridors. So that's an example of how the facts and the data are different. I think you need both in order to make a, to be able to make a good decision. But reliance on one without the other, I think, gives you this cartoonish version or picture of reality. And what about the flip side, analysis paralysis, where overthinking a decision can just be as dangerous and people just actually are too paralyzed to even act? In my experience, even when people fall into the, the, the trap of analysis paralysis, I think often it's paralysis based on overload of data and not on facts. So I'm looking at more reports. I'm looking at more spreadsheets that have been sliced 14 different ways instead of three different ways and getting caught up in all of the minutia of those numbers. And obviously that's no good either. And I think that there's always going to be a tendency in my experience to err on the side of conclusion jumping and less of a tendency to, to fall victim to analysis paralysis. Uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist in behavioral economics. He wrote a book two years ago, I believe, called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he describes two ways that we human beings have of processing the world of thinking. One is system one and the other system two, cleverly enough. <laughs> system one is this, is this reflexive 
heuristic-based, automatic, low-energy, low-intensity way of basically jumping to conclusions. Mm -hmm. You know, if you hear a train whistle, you don't stand on the track and try to figure out the velocity of the train, <laughs> the distance of the train from you. You just sort of say, whoa, I better get out of here. So this is something that, that comes, it's an evolutionary adapta adaptation that's, that's enabled us to survive. System two thinking, by contrast, is something that's mindful, it's methodical, it's labor intensive, it's energy consumptive. So if I asked you to multiply 17 by 86, you would have to really think hard about it. If I dropped you in the middle of Tokyo and told you to get from point A to point B using the subway system, I gave you a map, you'd really have to work on it. That kind of thinking is very important. We couldn't get through life without it. But if we use that kind of system two thinking all the time, we'd never get out of the house. Imagine trying to figure out what to wear each day or how exactly you're going to tie your shoes or what you might have for breakfast. It would be, it would be terrible. You wouldn't be able to do anything. So both systems are necessary. And the problem we run into is when we substitute system one thinking in a situation where we need system two. And all the pressures of life, of business, push us towards this um, and of course, training as well, push us towards this use of, of the rapid system one thinking. Dan, tell me about the sports shoe company ASICS and the conclusion trap they fell into. Well, I worked at, at ASICS for nearly five years. Um, the conclusion trap was when sales were going down at one point and we decided, we, the leadership decided that the problem is that we were organized by... <laughs> Our internal organization was based on product type. So we had apparel, we had footwear, and we had accessories. Okay. Sales mm. were going down. The leadership decided that we weren't really paying attention to the customers very well. So we decided to uh, organize ourselves by category. So we had our running team. We had our wrestling team. We had our, our basketball team and so on. And they, they would be responsible for footwear and for apparel and accessories. Uh, the truth is we didn't have enough people to staff all of those teams. And frankly, customers didn't care how we were organized. And we ended up laying off a bunch of people. We ended up not making any difference in sales. And about eight or nine months later, we reorganized, re-restructured back to where we were. So it was accessories, apparel, and footwear again. Because we didn't really understand the problem. We didn't understand what it was that was driving our sales downwards. Did it feel like a bad decision at the time, Dan? It did, because those of us in the trenches, and you know, I, was not, I was not in the leadership team, those of us in the trenches were thinking, this is insane. My work isn't going to change very much. And not only that, we don't have people to staff this category, that category, and the other one. And it didn't jive. The category organization didn't jive with anything we were hearing from our customers. So the big retailers, people like, say, uh, our version of Rebel Sport in the United States, which, which, where they were complaining that our materials on the footwear looked kind of old. They were complaining that, uh, that we didn't have enough advertising. They were frustrated that we didn't have more sponsored athletes. Uh, there were a variety of things that had absolutely nothing to do with the way we were structured. What are some of the signs, uh, the other signs of this jumping to a conclusion for you, Dan? I think a willingness to, to invest in technology. Usually when the processes are broken or there's something that we don't understand, by throwing money at technology, that usually just makes a faster broken problem or a faster problem, but it's still the same problem. And I've got a wonderful story about that. Yeah, share your story. Well, this was actually the genesis of, the, of this book. 
Uh, a dear friend of mine runs a software development company. So they, they do software like for uh, dialysis machines or diesel engine repair machines. So it's yeah. this custom software. And one day, the head of a logistics, a shipping, co- a trucking company had co- came to my friend and said, Rich, uh, I, we need an iPhone app. And Rich said, why do you need an iPhone app? And he said, well, we are a large company now, but we grew by acquisition. We acquired all these smaller companies from around the United States, and the software systems don't talk to each other. And as a result, I see that the, we don't get a lot of leads and sales transferred from one region of the country to another. And we're missing out on tremendous opportunities when someone wants to move, do a move from the Northeast to the Southwest. And Rich said, okay, well, that sounds reasonable, but let me talk to the users of this and find out what's <laughs> happening. And uh, he, he said, you don't need to. We, the software stinks, and we really just need an iPhone app because it would be so easy for everyone. They just pull out their phone, they tap the app, they launch it, they, they, they make the, the, the referral, and we're good. And Rich said, yeah, but just humor me. So Rich started talking to the users, the salespeople, and the salespeople said, yeah, the software we have is just a pain in the butt. It's really horrible. But... Uh, you know, if I hand if I hand a lead over to you, Lisa, I don't get any commission. So I have no interest in handing a lead off. There's just nothing in it for me. So, and the truth is, I, the the software is a hassle. But who really cares? If I was getting paid, I would I would use a carrier pigeon and a fax machine if I had to. So Rich <laughs> went back to the the CEO and he said, "Hey, listen, you don't have a software problem." You have a compensation problem. And he said, yes, but I want an iPhone app. <laughs> he said, it's not going to make any difference. So anyway, Rich did not get the business. I don't know whether he went, uh, he went on to spend money on, on, a, on an iPhone app, but that is a, the perfect example of investing in technology for no purpose because he didn't understand the problem. So one step for better decisions, you say, is thinking backwards. How does that work, Dan? Well, there is a tendency for with, when we're dealing with complex decisions and complex problems. Um, yeah. In other words, something more complicated than how do I tie my shoe or what should I wear today <laughs> or have breakfast. Uh, these are the things that we're facing on a daily basis at work. And so if you believe in my approach, which is to slow down, take two steps backwards before you take one step forward you're going to start to think more deeply about the problem. You're going to try to get the facts and not just the data. You're going to see for yourself what's happening. But there's a tendency to have so many ideas and so many possible uh, interpretations of the root causes that it's overwhelming. And so thinking backwards is a way of organized brainstorming. So what I can do is look at the areas, the factors, and start to group them just to give me a better handle So if the problem is what I see, I'm thinking backwards to understand the potential causes, what's underneath or what's behind those things. Can you give me some example of those categories? Let's say we have a problem with employee turnover. People are are leaving our company. Well, I'd want to take a look at the equipment. Maybe people are really dissatisfied with the equipment or the equipment doesn't work well for them. What about the processes? Um, do we have the right processes in our human resource department to identify who's frustrated and who might leave? Are we supporting them properly? Are the people working well? Are the managers coaching and training people appropriately? Are we evaluating people well if we go into the measurement area? In the United States, at least, we have these annual performance reviews, which tend to be a fiasco and not very useful uh, and terribly demotivating. But that, that form of measurement is not very helpful. 
there could be the the external environment. For example, let's say you're in a really uh, you work in in Silicon Valley in California, and the traffic is terrible with all the tech firms, and so everyone has to commute uh, 45 minutes to an hour and a half each day. Or perhaps there are issues with the internal environment. Maybe there is uh, there's low collaboration between people. Or there's very, very long hours because the people in this team are always dealing with Europe or Australia or something. And so people have to come in early and stay late. So by starting to think backwards, if my surface problem is the people leaving, I can now start to categorize the possible factors and to, to help me get a better handle on what's driving this surface problem. And then what are the five whys? The five whys are one of my favorite tools. And if you ever talk to anyone in the world of continuous improvement, uh, at some point, they'll talk to you about the five whys. And the idea here is that, to use another metaphor uh, or a cliche, we need to peel back the onion to understand what's really happening. So what we want to do is say, well, why did this happen? And then why did this happen? And then why did that happen? And keep going deeper and deeper. So for example, if let's say for uh, a website crashes, we could say, well, why did the website crash? And we could say, well, the code was written badly. Well, why was the code written badly? Because we could just stop there and fix the code, but that wouldn't really fix the problem because it might crash again. Well, why was the code written badly? Well, because we had this new team working on it. Uh, well, why did we have a new team? Because we have a really high level of employee turnover and we, we couldn't get experienced people to work on it. Well, why did this new team not know how to write the code? Uh, because we've cut back our training budget uh, we onboard people very quickly, and then we say, go get them, Tiger. And we don't really train them on how we write code in this place. Well, why did we do that? And so on. So now we can see that this cr the website crashing, which is due to the code, is actually a manifestation of a much deeper problem, which is a lack of training in the way we, our company writes code. So that's one example of how the whys take you down to a place where you might not have anticipated the problem, the real root cause lying. And the truth is it's called five whys because the classic example, uh, which comes from a Toyota factory, uh, has goes five whys deep. But it could be three whys. Maybe it's 11 <laughs> whys. We don't really know. There, there are many, many whys. The point is not to take the first answer as the true root cause. Thanks so much, Dan. Lisa, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dan Markovitz and Dan's book is called The Conclusion Trap. I'm Lisa Leong and you're listening to This Working Life where we try to find the sunshine at work, even in a pandemic. One tool that's been particularly helpful for me in this time is journaling. Now, I'm relatively new to it, but writer Carolyn Tate is an old hand as she's been at it for a decade. G'day, Carolyn. Hi, Lisa. How did you come to start journaling, Carolyn? So I started journaling in 2010. My son, Billy, and I went to live in Aix-en-Provence in uh, beautiful France. And I had a book with me called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And in that book, she recommends that we write three pages every single morning freehand. And she calls them the morning pages. So I did that while I was in France. And here I am 10 years later, still journaling every day. Oh, I read that book a while ago, but I never did the three pages. So what do you think the difference is between journaling and just keeping a diary, say? 
So journaling for me is more about whatever's coming into your head or your heart. It gets the words onto the page, whereas a diary is probably more a reflection of what you did for the day or it's probably a little bit different in that it's a bit more practical and functional, whereas the journaling I do is very much more streams of consciousness. And how does this stream of consciousness um, help you at work? Well, particularly in the writing of my books, um, like for example, I used it this morning, I'm writing a book on community at the moment and I used it to sort of map out my blog. It just came from my heart onto the page and then before I knew it, I'd kind of handwritten a blog that was in my head and my heart and uh, then I was able to tap it out onto the page within minutes. So I use it as a great way to get clarity of thought and help me write And is there something about pen and paper that's important too? Yes, I use pen and paper. I've got two massive boxes of journals over the last 10 years and I've got big, bold, cursive writing and I always use a gel pen. I always use a lined notepad and there's just something about pen on paper that is really um, uh, has a beautiful feel to it. Carolyn, you say it's also a really useful tool for team meetings. How is that? Quite often in a team meeting, you will have those people that are probably more outspoken than others. And so I think it's a great tool to ask everybody in the team meeting to write down their thoughts or ideas about a particular subject and then for people to be able to share so they can get clarity of thought without having to kind of feel like they're being coerced by other team members or that they have to agree with other team members. It's a way for each person to write down their thoughts, what they believe, and then uh, allow everyone to share uh, equally in a team meeting. And what principles do you abide by um, in journaling? I always do it first thing in the morning. So that's one principle I I stick to. I, I do use it also at times where I feel like I've got to make a decision. It's, I say that it's better than therapy. Um, <laughs> I, I can get my journal out and use it to help me come up with answers to decisions that I need to be making. The other principles are that I do use it over three pages. So I always fill those three pages regardless of whether it's dribble and it doesn't make sense. I think um, sometimes the gold comes out in the last sentence of it. And look, there's a whole lot of principles to to just really making sure that it becomes a habit, I guess, like brushing your teeth or having a shower or any of those things. I think making it a habit makes it really part of your life. How do you use journaling in decision-making? Generally for asking myself questions, I always say the quality of the answer is dependent on the quality of the question. So I'll think long and hard about the question I want to ask myself or I'll find a question that's relevant. Perhaps I'm doing a course or I'm doing something to do with work. So I'll, I'll write the questions and then I will record the answers and eventually I end up with some sort of decision and that decision might end up in a to-do list, for example, that I need to do for the rest of that day. Can you give me an example of a go-to question that you've found useful? Yeah, look, there's plenty of questions. In my last book, I've got probably 50 to 100 different questions. Uh, I think journaling about how am I feeling right now? 
and what's the cause of those feelings? What are the needs that are not being met or the needs that I have for those feelings to dissipate, particularly if they're negative feelings, um, particularly for people around uh, suffering from anxiety. It's a great way to clear the mind and help shift your perspective. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Lisa, for having me on the show. Writer Carolyn Tate and Carolyn's latest book is The Purpose Project. Next week, another important creative process, brainstorming. The groups that were engaged more of a traditional meeting in a 20-minute period, they generated on average 22 ideas in that session. Now, when we gave people the brainstorming guidelines, they increased the idea output twofold simply by following the guidelines. And then it just explodes when you provide training. Those groups that followed brainstorming and had a single, like a three-day course in creativity generated on average 107 ideas in the same 20-minute period. But we find that there's a lot more to it than a pack of post-it notes and a swag of good intentions as we dig down into the pros and the pitfalls of brainstorming. Oh, if you enjoy our show, please take a second to subscribe so that we drop into your feed each week with more great ideas on how to make work better for all. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who develops a twitch when she sees post-it notes on walls. (laughs) I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.